Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, and with me, as always, is co-host Aaron Cameron. The podcast today is part of the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference series run by the Canadian Real Estate Forums. We've got Austin Joins joining us. He's the VP of Marketing and Training for Rhapsody. He is speaking at the conference, but we've got an hour of his time today, and we appreciate it. Before we get into the meat of the interview here, I want to remind everybody that we are going to have the after show as usual at the end. Austin, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Austin, thanks for coming on. You know, we always like to start by looking backwards and understanding what your career path was. So maybe just kind of tell us why real estate, why marketing, why apartments, and how did you end up where you are today? Well, I came up through the operations track, and I feel like everybody who's fallen into specifically property operations and apartments is literally fallen into it by accident. I took a summer job in, uh, in like second year university as a leasing agent for uh, a new build uh, apartment community in downtown Toronto. And I said to myself, oh gosh, I could never do this for the rest of my life. Sure enough, 15 years later, here I am with a lot of kind of fun stops along the way. The last kind of five to seven years of my career has really been devoted to new build apartment rentals and kind of building property management, residential property management platforms from the ground up. So I, I spent some time with Bentall Kennedy in the beginning of the decade, helping them launch their residential property management platform before it spun off to be BGO and uh, was acquired by Sun Life. But in my time there, I worked with a bunch of institutional investors as they started to refocus their attention on, on the apartment sector and on growing apartment development versus acquisitions or, or repositioning and rehab. So you know, had the opportunity to be really involved from a marketing perspective, both product development and uh, lease up in new build apartments and really helping those pension investors and institutional clientele really put together a cohesive strategy around how to deliver on what they're saying and what they're selling from an apartment perspective. And most recently, I've found myself at Rhapsody. So Rhapsody is a property management company and development consulting arm that specifically focuses on new build apartments across Canada. So in the past 18 months, I think we've launched something like nine new apartment communities across Canada. And I've had a hand in many different ways from lease-up strategy, marketing, branding, and really bringing these communities to life. And then working with our current pipeline, communities that are either under development or shovels in the ground and in construction to figure out how we take them from concept to reality. So this is going to sound rude and I apologize, but with vacancy rates across the country at 1%, 2%, don't you just build it and they will come? I mean, <laughs> why do you need to bother with any kind of marketing strategy? And I, I'm setting you up. Maybe if I was a developer and I'm taking that tone that I'm skeptical that I need any guidance or consulting, tell me why it's important to have a strategy. Absolutely. So the build it and they will come adage will only take you to market rent. If you're really trying to maximize the value of your building and your NOI at the end of the day, having an effective marketing and leasing operating investment strategy that all kind of aligns together is going to be the only way that you get there. Having all of those different aspects, the marketing, the operations, the investment strategy, all aligned kind of from the very beginning as hopefully as you're going into design or, or evaluate the feasibility of the building is really going to set you up to not just be a building that leases up, but be a high-performing building that leases up, which will end up improving your value and your NOI at the end of the day. Good answer. I like it. 
Aaron, since you're a fictitious apartment owner, are you sold? <laughs> no, not yet, because vacancies are so low. What does it matter? I don't understand. No. Um, you know, maybe break that down a little bit, Austin. Let's dive a little bit deeper into those different sort of pillars. You talked about alignment. Maybe just describe what you mean and maybe give us some detail around each of them. Let's start with product strategy. We preface this by saying I'm going under the assumption that nobody ever truly succeeded in business by waffling in the middle. So you have your landlords who, or your property owners who are going to be price or value are going to compete on value. And then you've got your property owners who are going to compete on differentiation. I think most property owners are trying to compete in that higher echelon of differentiated property. And in doing so, we're trying to be all things to all people rather than truly understanding the actual size of the market that they're trying to appeal to and who within that market they want to try to attract as a segment. Ultimately, there are going to be people who gravitate towards any location because of, by virtue of the fact that it's at a certain location or by virtue of the fact that it's just something that, that they identify with. But without actually targeting a specific market segment, you know, you're potentially investing money in amenities and in services and in infrastructure that your customer at the end of the day is going to value. Do you mean like geared towards seniors, geared towards students, geared towards, you know, couples with young children? Or are you talking more about artistic people versus adventurous people versus what have you? Like, how do you mean the target market? How do you define that? Well, I, I think you can get pretty granular with it. And I know that there are a number of different services, different approaches that people are taking to segmentation. Psychographics is a big, big focus right now, especially among marketers, to understand the fact that it might not just be age and stage that is impacting people's purchasing decisions, but how they view the world and what their attitudes are and how they live their life. So I think lifestyle is probably the number one factor in terms of what we would look for. Segmenting in the seniors industry for a long time now, and clearly because there's a, a critical mass of, of seniors who are renting, as we're seeing renting become more common in the Canadian market, that same level of attention to detail and product development and segmentation, I think we'll start to see become more commonplace as we're building more apartments that meet the exact needs of the folks that we're trying to market to. So as you go through your working life, you must see glaring examples of what people, developers, got wrong. Of course, we're not going to name names in this podcast because we are a kind and gentle podcast. But can you give some examples of things that really jumped out to you that you would have majorly corrected? Uh, you know, I feel like every property owner is going into their development with eyes open with a different investment objective. From a marketing perspective, I think it's really just that. It's looking at, at the end of the day, before you're designing the building or while you're designing the building, who you're trying to rent to. And if it's affluent downsizers, then not building full of 500 square foot one bedrooms. If it's students, it's probably not a great idea to build large suites that are going, that, you know, whose price per square footage is going to drive up suite rents because they're more price sensitive. Again, if you're trying to attract young professionals, perhaps not incorporating children's playroom in your amenity mix. People are signaled by the kind of very small detail in an apartment community as they're walking through, and they'll make a decision whether or not it's something that they identify with. And it's sometimes those little details or those small things as they're walking through that make them think, hmm, you know what, this probably just isn't the right fit for me and drives them to a, a different development. We lose out on that opportunity for, to gain market share where you don't have kind of all those details lined up or buttoned up. 
I'm, I'm trying to think back to the apartment buildings I lived in and wondering what I had in common with my neighbors that may be attracted to that building, but these were not probably, sophisticated operations. <laughs> you probably didn't. And I think that that marks a, an evolution in the apartment industry in Canada. I mean, over the last kind of five to 10 years, there's really been a shift. And the folks who are property managers who are really focused, again, on those key metrics that owners look for, your NOI, your accounts receivable, and your vacancy, you know, property managers are a dime a dozen, but true apartment operators who are really focused not just on those key tricky metrics, but actually running the property as a business who are considering you know, the broader context of the industry are an emerging class. And I think that that's where we're seeing kind of that side of the industry moving towards in the next five to 10 years. And then how early in the process do you typically get involved with your input? As early as possible. I mean, even during the feasibility stage, when a property owner is looking at whether or not to build a building or how to build a building um, or whether or not to invest money in the building, we get involved to help them really define what the market share is and who could potentially be their renter. When you go into a situation like this size wide open and you really and truly can define and understand from where you're going to be pulling your pool of renters, you can truly quantify whether or not, A, you're at the end of the day, you're going to be able to achieve the rents that you're underwriting. And B, whether or not the marketing and leasing tactics that you're going to be using, you know, 24 to 36 months down the road when you're launching the property are really going to be effective. Well, well, to that point on timelines that you mentioned, have you had situations where you had to do a dramatic rethink of the marketing because of an external force? And we'll get into COVID in a little bit, not right now. I want to leave the conversation further down the road. But if you had situations where and I'm not saying through error, but if something happened where you realize that you need to shift the marketing, can you realign the building nine months into an 18-month process? So I think the answer is it depends. I would say that the way that we actually stage and roll out marketing campaigns for a property, we do get involved very early days from a strategy perspective in terms of trying to lay that foundation. But the actual execution of a marketing program should be just in time with the actual launch of the property so that you understand and have a sense of what the market dynamics are who's in the market looking for apartments and how all those factors come together as you're putting your strategy and your budget together. And that's got to marry up with your operation. Again, aligning what you're saying about the property, how you're actually selling the property to what you're delivering at the end of the day is the key to any successful lease up, any successful ongoing apartment operation. Because essentially, the lease up isn't one sale. It's a perpetual sale and the success of your business is predicated on the ongoing reputation. So timing that marketing launch or the marketing strategy, the actual tactical execution of everything to be very close to the actual launch of the property helps to prevent that issue. You know, Austin, a lot of, you know, Adam and I are in the apartment world and we are fortunate enough to interview a lot of apartment owners and, and more and more often we're hearing 15, 20, 30, 40 year sort of time horizons as far as their investment strategies. Clearly, lots change over those types of timeframes. So how do you coach your clients or consult your clients to kind of future-proof their building? Today, they want to target single retirees, but in 20 years, it's going to be something totally different, but you don't want to pigeonhole yourself. So what kind of things do you do to make sure that there's some flexibility in the amenities package or you know, how you can kind of shift over time? A lot of the amenities packages and how you program it. So the actual bricks and mortar in terms of what you're putting together is, you know, box in the sky is a box in the sky. The way that we look at amenities is really around what story they can tell to the people that we're trying to attract to the property. And you can take a fitness center or a gym, for example, with some shifting of equipment, some change in programming and some 
a different design in terms of what you've got on the walls or what prospects are seeing as they're walking through the property, you can tell a completely different story about that amenity. Same with a, uh, a lounge or a party space. You can program as a dining space, program as a lounge space, program as a communal YouTube watching space or video game space. It's really predominantly in the programming. So counseling property owners to consider how they're building kind of the base of the amenity package out and then layering on top of that, the, the design and the programming of it helps to create that sense of resilience so that in 10 years, in 15 years, if there is a shift with very minimal reinvestment, you're not locking, sorry, knocking down any walls. You're simply changing the furniture around, shifting things and redecorating, which essentially after that period of time, you should be doing anyway. You're calling it programming. And I'm wondering if it's different than what I'm about to ask you, because we hear kind of regularly programmatic living, uh, which is kind of this buzzword in the apartment space these days. And I've also heard people talk about, yeah, but the reality is one, it's expensive Two, you know, I'll put on cooking classes in my common area and three people show up and I just had to spend money and it's not necessarily valuable. What would you say or what's your thoughts on sort of the concept of programmatic living? Maybe define it so that we understand what you think of it and maybe how you talk to your clients about it. Yeah, I think you're talking about resident events. And I feel like everybody over the last 10, 15 years has started to do summer barbecues. And I think there are a couple of things that you can do to self up for success with programmatic living. The first is what I talked about before, which is knowing and understanding which segment of the market you're trying to attract. If you're hosting a cooking class for a bunch of for building full of eye bankers who aren't going to be home at seven o'clock because they're still at work and your cooking class is going to fail. You have to understand that... You should have a kegger at midnight. Exactly. Or, you know, have pizza delivered to the lobby at 11 o'clock so that they can pick it up and go as they're going upstairs. You know, I, I worked for a company that managed a community that was close to a hospital that was predominantly doctors and nurses that lived within it. And hosting events at the normal kind of dinner time hour it didn't make sense because people were on shift work. So it was finding different ways to understand who's living in your building and how to approach them or how to do kind of small things that are going to surprise and delight them in their day-to-day, whether it's an event, whether it's breakfast on the go, whether it's coffee. We've had a lot of success over COVID-19 with virtual events and having people subscribe to those, which has been really fantastic because it adds that added element of flexibility. In terms of the value, especially with new builds, when you're in markets like Alberta or the new build market in Ontario, where you're not in a rent control situation, the concept of loyalty in apartments is something that I feel like has been a conversation that we've been having for years and years and years and has never really come into fruition. I take responsibility for training in our organization because the way that we see it, the product that we have and what we communicate about the brand only takes you so far knowing how to execute and really you know, take those two tools and run with them and really leverage them to operate a, a successful building, we think is key to its success. So you know, being able to foster a sense of loyalty, to foster relationships with your residents, that's the real value of, of resident events and programmatic living. It's not the one-offs that they're taking their lunch from the front lobby or coming and getting a free glass of wine. It's that sense of community that they feel with their neighbors the opportunity for you to engage with them at a time when the fire alarm isn't going off or there isn't water pouring into their apartment so that when it comes to needing to give them a rent increase or needing to ask for their loyalty for a second year, they're more willing to do that. And they, they feel like they've got a relationship with you, which is much harder to quantify, I feel like, for a lot of the quantitative people, the asset management folks who are scratching their heads and going, why would we spend money on resident events? But ultimately, it underlines the fact that apartments is really a people business, and we've got to treat it as such. Well, on the same idea that maybe the asset managers don't get it, but you know, marketing you would, 
the U.S. is a great example of a much more competitive apartment market in terms of getting attention. So you see a much more of a dogfight with amenities and events. So do you ever look south to the border for any ideas for something you want to bring to this market? Or what are you seeing out there that's exciting that you expect buildings will have in the next five years that they currently don't? So Rhapsody's entire approach to property operations and operating apartments is predicated on the American model. We've got a number of of staff who have that U.S. background in leadership positions in the company to help add that element of sophistication that's arisen in the U.S. simply by virtue of the fact that it is more competitive down there. And I think what we've been able to do effectively is marry that U.S. sophistication and those tools with the Canadian knowledge of the market and the, the end consumer, the renter, that's really helped for us to be able to program our buildings or operate our properties in a way that's relevant to our renters and leverages that U.S. experience. In terms of trends that are coming up from the U.S., I think specifically in and around marketing, it's more of a flight to digital and considering how consumers are actually renting apartments. The days of hanging a banner on the outside of your building are over. People don't look for apartments that way. When somebody walks into an apartment building, we want them to know probably 80% of what they need to know about the building, including the price. And it's our leasing representative's job to get them the last 20% of the way there and convince them that that's the apartment that they want. People's buying habits all over the place have changed. And I think that that's the big trend is that continued flight towards digital. And so knowing and understanding your customer, knowing and understanding the data points that your customer is leaving you along their journey to the apartment and while they're living in the apartment is going to be, I think, what helps apartment owners and developers in the future really know what makes their renter tick and be able to program and and build buildings that are relevant to them. What's one of the most curious relationships? I mean, let me explain. Let's say the, the developer has decided to target, again, I've used it before, so I keep using it, single retirees. In that particular example, what would be the most bizarre or interesting amenity or program that would be the best for that? And don't use single retirees. Maybe you just use, there's something different that, that comes off the top of your head. Like You'd never believe that this particular segment of the society loves to have hot tubs or something, you know, like what's some of the more bizarre relationships you've come across? Ah, that's a tough one. If we're thinking about retirees and we're thinking of the more mature market, the amount of of uptake we've had in terms of downloading of our, our resident app among kind of that 55 plus category has been huge. They're very technologically engaged, but I don't know that that's news to anyone. I think we're, we're hearing that all over the place. Shuffleboard. Millennials and hipsters like shuffleboard. And I feel like that was a bit of a, an eye-opener for me because when I think of shuffleboard, I think of my Nana's retirement community in the late 80s, early 90s, not of a sophisticated high-end apartment building where all these people in skinny jeans drinking lattes are playing shuffleboard. So that was a bit of a surprise. That was a good one. Good answer. <laughs> yeah. Austin, just to, you know, we live in a very large country with very different tastes Do you see regional differences when you're putting together marketing platforms beyond the obvious use French in Quebec, but what do you see in terms of different regions when you're trying to attract tenants to buildings? I think it's not just regions, it's city by city. Every city has a different renter culture and a different sense of expectations that renters have. A perfect example is in Vancouver, majority of leases and leads are dominated by Craigslist. People are still renting apartments from Craigslist. And we attribute that to the influence that Washington State has had on Vancouver, whereas more 
apartments in the rest of Western Canada and Eastern Canada, typically renting through internet listing services or other classified services like Kijiji. So, I mean, you see those kind of differences in terms of the way that different renters are shopping and different sources that they're going through. So obviously, your media buys are different in those different areas. As you're building buildings, again, it's looking at kind of the personality of the folks in the city and, and what are the pull factors, what are the lifestyle elements that people love about the city. In Vancouver, Vancouver is a very active city. So having active amenities with a lot of outdoor space, with a lot of greenery, people are, are really attracted to that and really value that. In Calgary, having a lot of rooftop patios and stuff like that is not as much of a draw. But having storage space for skis and athletic equipment for the folks who are heading out to the mountains every weekend and they don't have to store their gross wet skis in their suites, you know, that makes a difference for them. So it goes back to understanding your segment, understanding your renter at the end of the day. Every segment's going to be a little bit different based on their lifestyle. So just understanding what age, what stage, and what socioeconomic background they have isn't going to be enough. As I mentioned you know, earlier in the podcast, we do want to get into the COVID. And so the, the two topics I want to talk about are the effects of COVID. And the other would be leasing in Alberta prior to COVID, because I know that was a tougher market as well. Aaron led off the podcast by uh, rudely alluding to how easy you've had it for uh, you know <laughs> the previous couple of years, but there must have been some headwinds in Alberta coming through the last few years and then in every market in the last few. Can you talk about leasing in this shifting environment we're in? Well, I was living in Calgary and getting ready to lease up to apartment communities when the bottom fell out of the oil market back in kind of the early 2010s. So it certainly hasn't been a cakewalk. And I would say that the property owners who did well were the ones who responded quickly and were people-oriented in their approach. And again, it goes back to that notion that apartment operations is a people business. Focusing on the relationship will never, ever steer you wrong. And the owners that were able to do that ended up with better and higher returns and preserve more value at the end of the day than the ones that didn't. In terms of the Alberta market now, again, Calgary and Edmonton are very different have very different dynamics. And I think, you know, we're seeing a lot of product come online, especially in Calgary, a lot of really good product, a lot of really exciting product that's really starting to redefine what it means to rent in the Calgary market. And the property owners, I think that are going to be really successful are the ones who have understood what their market segment is, have done their research and have created a differentiate, not only a differentiated product, but understand the kind of experience that they want to offer to their residents as part and parcel of the product. It's not just the, the four walls, the box in the sky that you're offering a, a prospect and the amenities that make up part of the community that's part of their buying proposition. It's all the other elements to what they're trying to sell and the intangibles, the emotional benefits, an effective marketing program and aligning that marketing program with your operating strategy can really communicate and help to drive value there. I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm going to get real for a second, Austin. It's September 9th, middle of COVID, September, kids are going back to school in a couple of weeks. Look around the world, France, lots of Europe where they've had resurgence of COVID cases. Lots and lots of doctors talking about how it's only inevitable that it comes back to Canada. Immigration is basically on pause. Students aren't going back to school. There's a lot of challenges in the economy coming up with federal grants being terminated, presumably. You know, there's a lot of challenge, a lot of headwinds right now in the apartment market, presumably short term, right? Hopefully it's three, six, eight months, 10 months, maybe. But, you know, as apartment lenders, Adam and I are certainly seeing some softening in the market around the country. Well, a lot of that is due to new supply coming on board where there just isn't the demand for that higher end product. I'm just curious how you're counseling your clients right now in this uncertain time with all the stuff that's going on around 
particularly the apartment assets with the new builds. What are you saying? Or maybe talk specifically, where are you seeing absorption rates right now? Where are you seeing the challenges? What's the slowdown? How much are rents coming off? Like just kind of talk about what you're seeing today in the apartment world. Absolutely. So I'll start with the renter. In any period of economic uncertainty or any recessionary times, luxury goods become inferior in the grand scheme of things. People are focused on saving. They're focused on not spending on frills and they are risk averse in terms of what they're trying to to buy or to purchase. And so as new builds are coming to the market, the message is traditionally around all the frills, all the great things, all the extras that you're going to get, all the value for money. And, you know, we've taken the approach and have counseled our property owners to shift that focus a little bit and really focus on the key fundamentals of the project in terms of how they compete with other projects in the market. And I think property owners get it. They obviously don't want to leave money on the table, but there's a recognition that there's been a shift. You know, I don't think I haven't been in one situation where there's been a completely unrealistic expectation that we haven't been able to, to come to terms on or to overcome. But what I would say, again, kind of the focus on those fundamentals, on the key and and understanding what's making the renters tick right now, what they're really valuing is a huge deal. And I would just redid a couple of model suites at a couple properties. And as opposed to having the second bedroom as a second bedroom, we've reprogrammed it as a home office in some way to help a renter really visualize and understand, you know, what it's going to be like to live here and what the true value of that second bedroom is, that you can have a pull-out couch and have somebody sleeping there if it's just you and a partner or you by yourself but uh, really understanding how the value of the actual lifestyle is, is going to be when they're living there. Everybody has seen reports of, of rent compression, of rental rates going down. And you know, being able to truly measure what impact that that's having and what decision to make, whether it's just a matter of needing to up your market to capture more market share or really needing to lower your price so that you're appealing to kind of more folks is really going to depend on how well a property owner can define what the actual size of their market is where the renters have traditionally been coming in from, what rental households have the propensity to rent versus not, and how many of those they're capturing as their people are coming through the door. And then it's the training and the ability of the leasing team or the folks who are actually on the ground at the property who are connecting with renters, showing them the best sides of the building, really helping them make that right decision. That's making the difference between the property owners who are capturing a lot of the market share are the ones who are dropping their pants, providing incentives six ways through Sunday, and really just trying to get people in the building. Short term, that's going to work. And as a cash flow strategy, like more power to you. But as it comes to really reaping those returns that you're going to get after year one, year two, year three, having somebody in the building who loves being in the building, who's willing to stay, who's willing to pay that rent increase, who's willing to bear it through the nights of fire alarms or the floods or the things that inevitably happen in any apartment community. You know, I think that there's going to be a rude awakening in two years that people are going to start to see some degradation on their NOI where they, you know, had they made a different decision now, they'd be in a better position in the long term. Given the headwinds that Aaron just mentioned and the fact that you like to get involved very early on in the process, is there any groups you're speaking with who are putting the brakes on projects, you know, that were still in a design phase? Uh, no, people, I think they're maintaining their confidence in apartments as a category in general. I think a lot of people agree that this has definitely been a blip and will be transformative in some ways, but I don't know that the kind of shift that some people are predicting this kind of flight from the city is actually going to materialize. I think people's lifestyles revolve around kind of that closeness and proximity to work, to transit to each other. And the idea of being socially distant on the long term by moving out to the supper 
finding more space isn't consistent with what we see in people in general. So I think as we start to see this wrap up, people are going to want to connect and be part of a community now more than ever. And apartments offer that in a very unique way that other living situations, other living conditions simply can't. I like that sentiment. We have these conversations regularly, and I think sometimes people get caught, particularly because of the way the media just works in three-second sound bites. Everybody gets stuck in the, if this is a permanent scenario, when you got to take a second and go, wait a minute, this is really, really short-term, like really short-term in the grand scheme of things, particularly when you're talking about 50-year IRRs or, or whatever the horizon your clients may be using. So I'm glad to hear that everybody's taking a more uh, myopic position. One more question, Austin, then we'll let you go. And this is more fun. And I apologize for getting real there. If you could build one type of apartment targeting one segment of the market, what would it be? Oh, that's going to depend on location, guys. Can't, okay, uh, so pick a look in, in a particular location. You tell me, dream apartment, land is free. You can go and build whatever you want for whoever you want. What is it? I think an underserved area of the market right now is the kind of the mid-earner, single-person household market. You know, they obviously want good value for money, but they want a certain level of service and of convenience as well. And so, again, really being able to understand and target in on specifically what those people want. I just want somebody to build an apartment building that's considered an end user from the very beginning. I don't know that I've seen a really good example of that. I feel like everybody's still really focused on trying to appeal to a whole bunch of people, but really focusing in on an end user on that target segment knowing and understanding that you can reprogram the building to be something else in five or 10 years when your market shifts. I want to see a building built like that. And I want to see it built inner city on a transit line, close to all the great things, you know, representing all the fundamentals. I think that most property owners are looking for in their properties, but really something that makes a renter tick or what makes their specific segment of renters tick and delivers value to them in a really unique way. If I were single, I would also want to live in a building with all single people. That would also be, I agree. I totally understand. And that's I'll pay a, I'll pay up for that for sure. That's the right? thing. And and hey, you know what? Again, there's a lifestyle element that works there. I mean, there's certain trends there, you know, not to generalize, but younger single people tend to go out at night more. So, you know, you know when you need security in the building on a Saturday night and when that's going to be super valuable for you. And you know that on Sunday morning, offering free brunch in the lobby is going to be a surefire way to win those people over. So again, understanding at the end of the day who the the lion's share of your renters are and what segment you want to target helps for you not to have to spend or invest in those elements of the property that your renters are simply just not going to value. I like it. Austin, thanks very much for taking the time to do this. That was very enlightening, a great conversation. I learned something, which is cool. I'd like to thank Informa, of course, for introducing us to Austin as part of the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference coming up shortly. You can catch Austin on one of the panels. I think it's next week it goes live. Also want to thank First National for powering the podcast and reminder that right after we let Austin go, Adam and I will do the after show where we kind of digest some of the topics that we discussed. Thanks very much, Austin. I appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show where Aaron and I share our thoughts on the episode we just had. Aaron, you learned something. Happy to hear you admit that. Yeah. Well, I wanted to say, I almost said I, I learned something which is rare, but I, I didn't want to insult all the other people that we interviewed, although I guess I just did. Um, no, I thought that was really neat. Like, it, it is curious where we're seeing this more and more now, where it's just the sophistication of the apartment industry and the institutional 
investors, right? This is a result of type of capital that's coming into the marketplace in apartments and just how competitive it's becoming. You know, 15, 20 years ago, when most apartment owners were sort of small to mid private, like this was just not what it would ever be something you think about. You literally, like you said, you put a sign up out front and the first person that walks through that has a credit score above 600 gets the apartment. Like it didn't matter where they fit within the segments of society. So I think it's really, really cool that this is kind of where the apartment industry is going. Yeah, during the episode, I kept thinking back the only time I lived in a you know a high rise apartment building is in London, Ontario, and the only common denominator between me and everybody else there was value seeking student would define the entire overarching theme of the building. It was uh, very inexpensive, nine hundred dollars a month inclusive for a three bedroom, and we did have three of us living in there, so there's three hundred dollars each a month. But the building itself is you know it was pretty sad. They actually did have yeah, they did have tenant events going on. But it'd be these very sad little affairs in the lobby that you would kind of awkwardly walk through while trying to get to the elevator and <laughs> just scurry up to your room. <laughs> and uh, when, I, when I think of that compared to what sharp operators are doing now, it's night and day. Yeah, my experience is pretty similar. It was apartment building downtown. So was, I guess the attraction was for all the tenants was being downtown. But the building was circa 1960s, zero amenities, like nothing at all. No common space, just the front foyer. And that was it. There was no programs. There was no nothing to pay every month. You had to slip cash underneath the door to the property manager. Like it was super boring. But I guess that was what, 15 years ago. Things have changed now. Well, when I first, this is the apartment building you're thinking, when I first met you, you were uh, unmarried and child free. And in an apartment building, steps from Queen Street, for anybody not from Queen Street, that's a very, very happening downtown spot in Toronto. Is that the building you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. 23rd floor overlooking the downtown skyline. It was cheap. It was like a dollar eighty a square foot. But you had to live with cockroaches. That was the downfall. Yeah, very, very different experience. The other one that's always blown my mind too is the student rental in particular taking leaps and bounds forward from a market composed of very, very poor product to these amenities and features that would blow my mind if 20-year-old Adam had been offered it at the time. The other one I wanted to ask you about, Aaron, we talked quite a bit about work from home, not in this episode, but in other episodes, you know, how it relates to office and all the competing theories about why we're going to need more office, why we're going to need less office. The discussion we had about turning two bedrooms into one bedrooms plus home office, that's a pretty solid bet on work from home persisting into the foreseeable future. Yeah, I found that interesting. I mean, even if you were a couple, right? Thinking, yeah, I guess we could afford two bedrooms, but you could kind of convert one of the rooms into an office with two desks and or somebody sits in the kitchen. Like I, I particularly short term, if this is short term, and hopefully it is. But yeah, I, I think that's a unique way to continue your absorption of your vacant units. But yeah, you're right under the umbrella of do you need more office or not? If you've got apartment developers now selling, here's an apartment you can work from home permanently from, that would kind of indicate less office space. I mean, who knows? That's a story yet unwritten for sure. I'm curious, I want to ask you this, Adam, what, <laughs> and maybe I'm putting you on the spot a little bit, but if you could go back and live in that apartment building back in London, maybe not that one in particular, but what kind of programs would you want? Like I still can't necessarily figure out what, what I would be attracted to, whatever segment of the market I come from. I mean, so as a student then, this is the time period of my life I'm referencing. You know, London, Ontario would make sense, a big student destination. The two things that mattered then, to be honest, would be partying and studying. If I could have a study room separate from where I lived with two other guys, that would have been very helpful because we were in a three-bedroom 
three guys living together. There was always something going on, which was fun and amazing and super exciting, but it didn't necessarily lead to hyper-focused studying. And then, of course, the other one, you know, at that age, it's, you know, it's a apartment building full of students and you want to party. So any sort of students' events around social engagements I would have likely been involved in other than the four in the afternoon tea time that they did have, which wasn't a great connection with a bunch of 20-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> what about now? Say Laura kicks you out and you end up in an apartment building. What would you want? I think about that constantly because, you know, there's always, <laughs> there's always that risk. Uh, what I would want, I would want hotel-like concierge services to help me with my everyday needs. When I think of the way the hotels treat me when I travel, I would like that in an apartment building because it would really unencumber my life to focus on what I want. Like turn down service at 7 p.m. while you're out eating dinner kind of thing where you show up and the lights have been dimmed and the music is on gently and your slippers are right beside the bed. That's what you're looking for? I wouldn't say no. (laughs) You stay in very nice hotels, I say, it sounds like. (laughs) Yeah, but it is a valid point. I mean, because when you think about programmatic living, it is, in my mind, a shorter list of things that buildings do. But Austin was rhyming off some, you know, some things, and he rhymed off some things I hadn't thought of, like the cooking classes. And I was recently like, at an apartment building where they've got, yeah, like shared kitchen space for leisure events, guest suites, things like that. You know, there there is a lot going into these buildings. They're real, you know, like this is real money going in to build guest suites and state of the art gyms. You know, when we reference the work from home change with uh, moving a two bedroom to one bedroom plus office, that could be reversed without a lot of capital expenditure. If the demand for work from home kind of diminished, you could easily revert back to a two bedroom. But if you're investing in, you know, shared kitchen space, that's going to be hard to really turn into anything else at any point. Yeah, but I asked the question about future proofing, and he kind of just said, "Well, yeah, but with a little bit of work, you can often just kind of change the programs of whatever it is, whether it's the gym or the common space." I guess that's the reality: is you build enough space that's attractive so that you can put in there whatever you think is appropriate for your target market, assuming that you're taking that seriously with the flexibility down the road. If your target market changes, it's anyway. I just I find the whole concept of being really specific with who you want in your building to be interesting. And that brings up another point that I we didn't really bring up here, but we've had conversations with other apartment owners who, who do take this seriously about how people like to live in buildings with other people like them, right? Like they just do. So if you are being really focused with your target market, I think there's almost an inherent value because they're going to see that these are people that I like me. They all have the similar core values to me. I'm more willing to stay longer term, right? So it generates loyalty. Anyway, I think there's a lot of really interesting changes going on in that apartment space. It definitely makes it less of a buy-the-pound proposition or a commodity proposition that you could have two buildings within a block of each other. And if there's just a generic product, people will leave for 100 bucks more a month. You know, Whereas, yeah, if you're attached to the building and really connected with it, there's value in that. Turnover is expensive. It's, uh, yeah. So Adam, I got a question. So you're a lender. If a client shows up, two buildings side by side. One is just renting whoever. The other one is renting very specifically with really focused programs and target markets. And they're getting an extra 25 to 50 cents per foot. Are you able to justify that as a lender? Or do you have to go, "Mm, I think the average is what I'm going to take. Can you buy into the sort of, like he said it, it's really hard to justify the value, right? But it's there. Inherently, we know it's there. But, you know, lending doesn't necessarily deal with altruistic values, it's really much more what does the dollars and cents show you? And comparables too, right? And that's the challenge, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, I might, you know, put on my credit hat, I would definitely want to look at the historical performance of the building operating under this model. That would go a long way towards proving it. But yeah, if it's a brand new concept, it is definitely tougher. With lending, you definitely look more towards the core principles, not anything that generates income that might not be as reliable, we'll call it. What you really need is you need Austin to come and sell you on it, right? <laughs> he answered your first question very well when you said, why do I need you? It's, uh, yeah, it, was, did. No, uh, it was very well done. Very, very well yeah. done. Yeah, you asked a couple of tough questions today, but they were all good and all handled well by Austin. Uh, he could handle it. He could definitely handle uh-huh. it. Anyway, I think that's a wrap. Everybody, thanks for listening to the after show. Of course, thanks to First National Powering the Podcast. And Adam, talk to you next time. Sounds good, Aaron. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.